broadcasting live from the Santa Lucia Highlands through the heart of the Casterville Artichoke Fields, westward to the Elkhorn Slough, and south to the rugged Big Sur coastline. You're listening to What's the Plan? A weekly discussion with local thought leaders about the future of Monterey County. And now, here's your host, Mr. Paul Wyant. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. We have a great, phenomenal guest today, Mr. David Henderson. He's a former economic advisor to Ronald Reagan, author and a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about his recent article, uh, somewhat criticizing the Nobel Prize Committee uh, for giving the Nobel Prize to Mr. Ben Bernanke for his work on the uh, 2008 um uh, crisis, and we'll talk to him about inflation and all these other great things. So you're going to sit or stick around for the entire show. It's going to be phenomenal. But first, let me remind you that I'm Paul Wyan, owner of Express Employment Professionals in Monterey County. At Express, we can help your business find great employees. So give us a call today, 831-920-1857, or just Google us. It's much easier that way, uh, Express Employment Monterey County. And I want to do a quick plug for our show and podcast. We do some bonus uh, programs. We did a great one with Dan Miller, the uh, managing editor of the PG Press. And you can go to our website, what's the plan monterey.com, or just get on your iPhone and go to iTunes and Google, or I mean, iTunes and search for what's the plan Monterey. Mr. Henderson, thank you so much for joining us today. Really happy to Thanks, have you. Paul. Yeah. yeah. Happy to be here. Thank you. I don't know where we want to start, but I think what would be an interesting place is because inflation is a, uh, it's a hot topic. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of debate about what is causing our current inflation. And then I've heard a lot of people like Steve Forbes just wrote a book on it. And, the, and they talk a lot about uh, monetary inflation and then and then more specific kinds of inflation that are supply side, like supply chain disruptions and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about, maybe even tell some stories about what's causing our current inflation, the broader spectrum, and, and, and kind of clarify those two types of uh, inflation? Sure. And this is incredibly good timing. I was supposed to go and listen to a talk by a guy who's an expert on monetary policy up in San Jose yesterday. He got sick. So I was asked to give the talk. Uh. <laughs> Jeff Hummel and I, Jeff is my monetary guru. I've learned so much from him. He uh, He's retired from San Jose State University. So basically, here's what I said, and, and it's completely relevant here. Milton Friedman back in 1966 said, quote, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Now, let me explain that. There's a sense in which that's true by definition, because of course, it's a decrease in the value of the money. That's monetary. But he meant it more empirically. He meant you can't find a major inflation that's not caused by a preceding increase in the money supply. And you can't find a major increase in inflation that is not caused by an increase in the, in the rate of growth of the money supply. And so, you know, that's, uh, that's what causes it. Now, the supply chain, I talked about this in my talk yesterday. It is true that if the actual real gross domestic product falls then you've got more you've got a certain amount of money chasing fewer goods so that clearly could cause an increase in in the price level which is inflation the thing is though no one has claimed that our supply chain problems have led to more than say a one and a half percentage point reduction in real GDP, which means all you've accounted for is one and a half percentage points of about 8% inflation. So really the driver is monetary policy. Now, some people say it's fiscal policy, all this debt, uh, but that happens only because the Fed monetizes the debt. The Fed buys up the debt and that puts more money in the economy. 
Well, a, a, so a compelling, not necessarily counter argument, but because I don't even know how you know, and you would, but how the uh, inflation rate is calculated. But if you think about like environmental policy um, and restriction on home construction or other environmental policy and restrictions on like, say, refining or pipelines and those kind of things, how big of an impact? So you're saying 1%, but how, I mean, those are like, I know that they're having a huge problem on the coastal areas of California as far as yeah. homes go. And then you've also got the policies of California government, where we're paying close to $7 at points here, whereas in Colorado, they're paying three fifty a gallon for gas. So how important are those decisions, like environmental policy, how much could those be driving inflation? Well, they're hugely important for us, of course, but they're not big drivers of inflation because we've had, take the housing thing, which is the big one you mentioned. We've had restrictions on housing now for 20, 30, 40 years. So it's only an increase in the restrictions on housing that would cause more inflation. Now, what that means is if we got rid of these restrictions, as I've been advocating, let people build apartment complexes in Pacific Grove where I live, then of course you'd have a big increase in output and then you would have a slight, at least a slight decline uh, in inflation. So yeah, but I still think the big driver is, is monetary policy, not the supply side. And we can and we can neck down to the local issues because I'd I'd love to talk to you some more about you know the state mandating that we build the low income housing and I and I think you would probably be a proponent well build market rate housing and it'll all exactly. figure itself out but because you're yeah libertarian and I'm definitely leaning more and more the older I get I'm leaning more and more towards your uh, side of the fence there yeah, uh, David yeah. funny what uh, what learning does <laughs> yeah it's a uh, but the one question I wanted to ask and this is more of a uh, it's just an ex by way of kind of teeing up an explanation for you. So, in your article in the Wall Street Journal, you uh, you're you're somewhat critical. I don't know. I, I, in Quite the introduction, critical. I said it was critical of, of Ben Bernanke's Nobel Prize, but in that article, you said it, you advocated for not saving firms in 2008, like Lehman Brothers and those. Um, but you did advocate for a, a quantitative easing or pumping, printing money. Yes. Whereas. And I would assume that now in 2021, the printing money that was done kind of through through legislation, through like the Build Back Better or whatever they call it, the Inflation Act, uh, that was bad. So explain why printing money is good in 2008 and bad in 2021. Well, first of all, it's not legislation that caused the printing of money. It's legislation that caused the big deficit. And then the government, the, the Fed chose to monetize the deficit by buying the debt. Okay, but back to 2007, 2008, you had uh, what was going to be a decline in the rate, rate of growth of the money supply. And the obvious fix is to increase the rate of growth to prevent a big recession. So the way we got the Great Depression, what made it great was a 30% decline in the money supply between 1930 and 1933 as banks failed and the Fed failed to be the lender of last resort by printing money. So, so you're Greenspan, saying, are you, would you argue then instead of the, the New Deal, if he had instead printed money and, and like this is the Holly Smoot stuff. So if if he had just printed money, then you think the Great Depression would have been would greatly reduce the, the impacts of it. 
he meaning the Federal Reserve, I've forgotten the name of the guy, because the guy who Milton Friedman says would have done it died in 1928. And so we didn't get that guy, uh, a guy named Strong. Um, so, so, so let's fast forward to, to Alan Greenspan. There were three things where he understood that lesson. The 87 stock market crash, people forget this, but it fell 22% in one day, which is a record by far. And Alan Greenspan said, let's let's have more liquidity. And then as the economy recovered, he sucked it back. Same with Y2K. He did that then. And so uh, and same with 9-11. And so he, he, it, he was the best Fed chairman we've ever had. And whereas Bernanke is more, hey, let's get into the weeds here. Let's figure out which intermediaries, which financial companies we ought to bail out. And he doesn't know enough to do that. It, he has what Friedrich Hayek called the fatal conceit. And that's re- that really messed it up. The other thing he did was at the same time he's printing money and, and putting it out there, he's sucking it back and he's paying banks to hold, he's paying interest on the bank's reserves. So that means they're less willing to lend. So even though he increased what's called base money, M2, the standard measure of money supply, rose a couple of percent, and that wasn't enough. And we wouldn't have had the big depression, the big recession we had if if Bernanke had followed what Alan Greenspan followed. And that's, by the way, Bernanke didn't get the Nobel Prize for that. He got it for some academic work. But if the main thing you've done in life is is head the Fed and screw it up. I think that the central bank, by the way, which gives the Nobel Prize, central bank of Sweden, should take account of that and not have given him the prize. So I've written that article when the day the prize comes out. I've written it 21 or 22 out of 26 times. This is by far the most negative I've ever been. Like usually I'll be 70 to 90% positive. I was like five to 10% positive. <laughs> well, well on that, to that note, so um, I like your characterization of Greenspan. He would print a bunch of money and then suck it back once the job of the money had been done to kind of save us from that depression or the recession. How would you rate Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen and as, their, uh, as they were uh, Fed chairs? I thought Janet Yellen was uh, better than Bernanke, but also, by the way, she didn't face much of a crisis, so who knows? I think Powell is horrible. Um, I gave a talk in Wisconsin a couple of months ago, and I quoted what Powell had said is, we, back in June, we realized we don't really know much about inflation. Now, on the one hand, it's very nice to have someone admit his ignorance. On the other hand, if you're that ignorant, you shouldn't be chairman of the Fed. We know what causes inflation, and that learning seems to have been lost. So in this talk, it was Jeff Hummel and I giving the talk yesterday. Jeff said, whatever else he thinks of Bernanke, and he shares my view, at least Bernanke was a smart guy. Powell, not so sure. Yeah, wow. That that's a deep credit. Well, what's interesting about it, and I've heard like Warren Buffett, and this is more of a business question getting into it, inflation business, because it's always it's often said that inflation hurts the poorest people because obviously if you have to go and pay more for a gallon of milk, it's gonna hurt you the most, not the rich guy. But another thing that like other businessmen have talked about is the valuation of businesses. So you might be like like now, you might have a business that's got a 10% profit, but if inflation's eight percent and you're paying taxes on that 10% profit, you're actually losing money uh, from from inflation. So, so the valuation of the stock market, how does inflation, because all of those valuations of the stock market, at least as far as I understand it, are kind of done through a 
like an economic calculation where you're taking the net present value of their future earnings, sort of right. more or less. Right. So well, um, how would it that, impact that? It doesn't hurt stocks nearly as badly as bonds because bonds, of course, the interest rate is fixed. So if the, inter- the inflation goes up, you just lost value in your bond, whereas at least the company has the ability to raise prices. And so, no, I don't think, I mean, it, it hurts. It hurts everyone. But I think it hurts the stock market way less than the bond market. And not just I think that. I mean, the, the evidence is that way. Yeah, the stock market did take a big hit, but that, that might have been election-related recently, like yeah. in the last couple of days. Well, I, did um, you see what it did today? No, what happened? That- <laughs> S&P 500 went up 5%. Wow. Well, and I go. think it's because the inflate. Oh, one thing I said that I'm so proud of yesterday, I pointed out that the last three months – if you annualize the inflation data for the last three months, not including October, um, the annualized inflation rate was 2%. And I said, I wouldn't be surprised to see the rate come out tomorrow, namely today, at about 0.4, and I was right on. So it it is coming down, and what we're misled by is taking a 12-month period when you had 0.8, 0.6, 1.2 in various months. It's been 0.1 and 0.4 and 0.4 those the last four months. Ah, so so do you think then, um, what, what do you think I that think is? I think we're back to 4 to 5% inflation. Yeah, wh- why do you think that is? Why, do, why does inflation come down so much? Because even though, <laughs> uh, you know, what's his name? I can't think of the guy's name. I think so badly. Who's the head of the Fed? Um, Jerome Powell. Uh, Powell. Even though yeah. Powell doesn't exactly know what he's doing, some people around him kind of do, and they're kind of reining in a little the growth of the money supply. I, now, here's the big I, unknown. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Velocity is the other thing. People's demand to hold money, how quickly do they want to get rid of it? And what happened in 2020 with the lockdowns, we started hoarding money. So velocity fell 25%. And that's why M2 went up 25% and didn't, not much happened to prices in 2020. But now, at, I don't know why people are not dishoarding more. But when they start to do that, velocity goes back up. So we could get into a big inflation problem yet. That's why I'm not, you know, I... I I'm I'm somewhat optimistic long term, but I'm I'm nervous about it. I recently, because of this election, I realized that I'm I'm completely like I don't know anything it's because because <laughs> I I'm like looking at uh, um, our president, Mr. Biden, and thinking he's like Peter Sellers and being there. It's just like <laughs> he just stumbles in a direction and things just kind of work out for him. I mean, yeah. by all accounts, like from, you know, these things, he may have been corrupt and taking money from China and all this. And we, we may never investigate it, but he, he just, things just work out. Now, now, now to hear inflation's coming down, it's kind of a crack up uh, to, <laughs> for, for him politically. Well, real yeah. quick, uh, you're listening to What's the Plan on 101.1 FM and uh, 1460 AM. I w- want to ask you, what was your take on the election? Why do you think uh, the pollsters got it wrong? And now we're probably getting out of the economics and just right into the behavioral economics world. But why? What was it because the like? there's a big theory that the Republicans just ran a bunch of kind of crazy people. But I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think the pollsters got it as wrong as the prediction markets. And that's the big surprise. The prediction markets usually do way better than the pollsters because people are putting real money on it. So the reason I thought the prediction markets were right and the pollsters were understating Republican gains was because there's that nervous Republican voter, the one who doesn't want to admit to a pollster how he's going to vote. And I think maybe that they're, you know, 
the people voting for the Republicans were so pissed off, they're willing to say, because they, they dislike Trump so much. That's my guess. Now, why did the Republicans not do well? I think, so remember 94, they had the contract with America, which wasn't perfect, but had real meat in it. This mm-hmm. time they had the commitment to America. I don't know if you ever read it, but there was no there there. Like, we want a strong economy. Okay, what's that mean? Do you think Biden wouldn't say he wants a strong economy? People mean different things by that. What gives you a strong economy? And I think they were just not willing to, to take positions. So that was part of it. The other thing, I looked at the data and Gen Z, Generation Z, voted by more than a 20% margin for Democrats. And I don't know what you do about that, because those a lot of those people are people who are getting a bailout on their student loans. And Republicans, to their credit, have opposed that bailout. Well, what do you do? <laughs> you know, you're not going to advertise that. Uh, so, so you know, it, that, that was a tough one. Um, I mean, the good news is the Republicans are taking the House by a small margin. They can stop the worst of the spending agenda of, of Biden if they have the guts to do so. So it's, you know, it's not bad. Yeah, yeah. So that that kind of leads into um, it's a it's a little bit more of, um, I guess, uh, you're kind of get to your to your libertarian philosophy well, how would you feel? So, because I know one of the things that libertarians talk about is like the um, defense spending is something that you want to. That's something that's worth being taxed for. And I, I wanted to ask you right quickly defense about spending, not offense spending. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, but but then then you get into a problem of the lag. So if if like Weimar Germany or something builds up their army and we haven't caught up yet, I mean, so I'm thought now let's shift to China instead of World War II. So if you think about China. Uh, they're increasing their defense spending. They're doing. They're getting a, a lot of leg up technologically on on the United States. And you're an MPS professor. What do you think the right um, reaction to China's like military aspirations are? Um, well, this might make me unpopular with lots of people, but I think we should stay out. I mean, I've given talks about this to U.S. admirals um, that China is a threat to a lot of its neighbors. It's a real threat. I don't deny that. It's not a threat to us because we have this great thing called the Pacific Ocean, and it's very hard to come up with a scenario where they really threaten us. Of course, that's assuming no use of nuclear weapons, but they would be crazy to do that because we could use nuclear weapons back. And so I don't think they're much of a threat to us. Um, and well, what, so, about, what about what about um, you know uh, microchips? I mean, because if they did, if they repatriate Taiwan or whatever the word would be, to, if they took Taiwan in some kind of military action, and we don't have the manufacturing capabilities to make the microchips, or you, you just think the the market would figure it out in a year or two? What what would I don't know if it's a year or two, but the market would figure it out. I do think it was crazy, and and when I heard the number recently that something like over 90% of our microchips are produced in one country. Like that is crazy, especially when that country's Taiwan, which is threatened. So, you know, over time it would work out. We could have a serious problem while it's working out, but yeah, I, I, um, I don't think that justifies going to potential war with, uh, with China. Yeah. that it could be, yeah, it, we'll end up in a proxy war, like in um, in the Ukraine, where we're just pumping money into them and selling them defensive weapons. But um, yeah. the um, the next question I was thinking about was like, so Steve Forbes just wrote this book on inflation, and and he his famous idea back from whenever he ran for president was in the nineties, I think, 
yeah, 96, it, he was, his big idea was flat tax, yeah. which I always loved. It of course would kill the, the, you know, billions of dollars of useless productivity as far as the, uh, like tax preparers are concerned, <laughs> but, right. but what, and, and that, that does seem like a lot of a huge waste of ingenuity is all these people just sitting around preparing taxes all day. So what, uh, you know, accountants and stuff, what, what do you, what are your thoughts on his idea of the flat tax? Well, I think it's a great idea. I would point out that virtually everyone's version of the flat tax isn't actually flat. And, and I get that. And the reason is they have the first X thousand being non-taxed. And the reason to do that is very low income people. I mean, you don't want to tax someone making 20 grand at a rate of 90% on all 20 grand, right? Yeah. And so you have to have some substantial amount that's not taxed. It would still, and I'm not arguing against in this basis. I just think we should have our eyes open as we go into it, but it would still mean a lot of low income people would lose some tax benefits because there's the earned income tax credit. There are all these things where they're actually getting a subsidy and that would go away. And so I'm in favor of that going away, but let's realize that that's a, a major, major change. Well, and then there's issues like there's, everybody's got a sacred cow like you got the homeowner um tax like you can make five hundred thousand dollars as a married couple on your primary residence and take it out tax-free you die and your kids get your money tax-free there's this the 1031 exchange for investors where they can take one investment property sell it and move it to another investment property tax-free so what do you do about all those people those people i think everybody uh, that from that list would be screaming and hooting and hollering about getting rid of all those tax benefits well, I wish I'd known we'd talk about this because my colleagues <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> at, that's all right. My colleagues at Hoover, Bob Hall and Alvin Rabushka, wrote a great book on the flat tax in the 80s, and I think they updated it. And they lay out the answers to all those problems, but it's not like right at the top of my mind. <laughs> I can, you, anyway. you don't have all this memorized, David. Come on. I, I do. And you know what's funny is like uh, you can assault a professor like of economics with all these really complex questions and you go, hey, come on, answer the questions. <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, it's it's yeah. pretty it's pretty funny. Um, so, what are you working on now? Like, what what kind of articles are you working on now? Any uh, current events uh, stemming? Like, are you are you producing any articles in the Wall Street Journal, other places? Uh, or yeah. Uh, so, what I do is every two weeks I do an article for the Hoover Institution for its online publication, Defining Ideas, and I've actually got to figure out on Sunday what I'm doing for that article for Monday. Uh, I'm thinking of two things. The one is the gig economy, because the gig economy is one of the real success stories of the U.S. economy lately. There's so many people who want to be independent contractors, but Biden's U.S. Department of Labor now has proposed a regulation, and they're taking mm -hmm. comments about essentially getting rid of the gig economy. Well, it's the same law, AB5, that they passed in, uh, that Lorena Gonzalez, I think, passed in California that was basically yeah. the anti-Uber and independent trucker bill, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a huge, huge supply-side shock to the economy. And their implicit assumption, and maybe they really believe this, I don't know, but the implicit assumption behind it is, oh, people really want to be employees. Well, when I get in an Uber or a Lyft, occasionally I ask the person, and like they say, this is great. I can take a day off to take care of my mother. I can then work longer hours tomorrow. You know, all these ways that people have flexibility – and those are gone for a large part of the economy if they get that. I'll give another example. My wife is a freelance editor. Because she's in California, she does stuff for people at Harvard. 
or she did stuff for people at Harvard. Because she's in California, they had to have her, uh, they had to pay this firm that hires her. So she gets a W-2. She's an employee. It was a hassle, but she did it. And then she got a notice. You have to take sexual harassment training. Yep. Well, who's this 72-year-old woman working at home going to sexually harass other than her husband? And we can't handle <laughs> that. You know? And so- it, why? And she just said, the hell with this. I'm not working for people at Harvard. Boom. You know, oh, uh, yeah. like a quarter of her business. But the hell I think this. the the counter argument always seems to be like, OK, this guy, you know, is, a, I don't know, a hairdresser. And then he accidentally stabs himself in the arm or something and needs medical <laughs> attention and big haircut doesn't pay for it. I think yeah. that or, you know, someone, an independent trucker throws out his back and can't work anymore. And the trucking company just throws him on his can. And now he's penniless. I think that's the counter argument, at least the one that I've always heard, which it doesn't hold a lot of water for me because people, I think, you know, it's like you have the, uh, you can do free association. You can choose who you work for. You know, yeah, you should be aware yeah. of these risks. I don't know how much, how much do we rely on our employer to take care of us? But I agree with you. And it especially doesn't make sense in this economy. You look at the number of vacancies versus the number of people unemployed and the V over U is still greater than one. Yeah. And so, you know, if you want to be an employee, you've got lots of choices to be an employee. And, yeah. and so, yeah, I just think this is bad. And unfortunately, the Department of Labor has the power to do this. This It'd be interesting if that West Virginia decision uh, recently versus the EPA matters for this, where the Supreme Court says, no, you're going beyond what the law allows you to do. Congress needs to legislate this. That would be interesting. I'm not I would think so, because Marty, whatever his name is, the Secretary of Labor, uh, yeah, it would seem weird to unilaterally be able to do this without a yeah. legislation. So AB five was legislation was so legislation yeah i i would i wouldn't bet that this is going to pass it would, there's too many people that would probably be against it the last one of the last questions i want to ask you too is like so monterey and pg pacific grove and carmel to a certain extent have all been dictated from on high to, to produce so many amounts of uh low-income housing so many units of low-income housing and all of them don't don't have the water to do it but what are your thoughts on on that because it seems to me like the, the government on one hand the coastal commission is saying no you can't build any more houses because you don't have water and you'll destroy the environment. And then, then on the other hand, like from Sacramento, they're saying you must provide low-income housing. And I don't, I don't understand how the, the government can do both things at once, but I don't know. What, what are your thoughts do on that? that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, uh, John Allison, who uh, ran BB&T Bank. I was, I was in a meeting with him in Washington back in 2009, and he points to this rumor in and says, we've got a room of regulations this big, and I got to figure out which ones to disobey. <laughs> you can't obey all of them. And, and that is a big problem. Yeah. So um, that, that, is, that is interesting. So on that, uh, also, I want to ask you locally, you're involved in a lot of things. I know you were involved heavily in, in like getting us back to work after COVID. And that seemed to not politically affect Gavin Newsom at all, because you had a couple of uh, rallies out there uh, yeah. in Monterey. What uh, what, are you, what are you working on locally rather than, uh, you know, I know you, you do a lot of things to, uh, for the yeah. Hoover Institute and all that. Yeah. We won on Measure Q. Yeah, yeah, that's big time. Oh, how about gambling? Get... I really wanted online gambling to win. And yeah, it yeah. Went down in flames. It. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah, like 20%. Was, yeah. And the advertising against that was horrible. People are going to make money. Oh, my God. People are going to make <laughs> money running a business. What's this country come to? But there was tons of tax revenue in that. So I thought that's what would have made it pass. But uh, I know. so what else locally? Are you uh, are you excited about any of the results of the races or anything? 
our our race on measure q i'm excited um, <laughs> oh and actually pg is legal well it's an advisory vote but it's an advisory vote to legalize marijuana marijuana and yeah. so i voted for that and i voted against the special tax on marijuana but <laughs> the tax went through also ah uh, yeah yeah that's that'll be interesting and then i, I think debbie back um she was joe really emilio and yeah. who was the third one that won i can't oh uh, uh laurie mcdonald laurie mcdonald and then pg and then uh, i think tyler williamson may end up being the mayor of monterey it looks that way huh yeah so, i know him personally he's a really nice guy but i think he's going for rent control that's my big fear i think so too he's been on the program a couple times and he's he's talked about rent control which is yeah, he's he's a fascinating dude, though. So uh, I would we'll love definitely if you have him back. could have me again to do one just on rent control. Oh, yeah, because I'd send you some stuff. Well, the interesting thing about rent control is we already have the lab results are back from like New York. I mean, they've been doing yeah. it how many years? Forty years there, and it's a disaster. Uh, no, uh, eighty years. Eighty <laughs> years with the with those. Uh, it was a temporary measure during World War II, 1942. Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. we, yeah. David, you're welcome back anytime, dude. I love okay. talking to you. Uh, you're fantastic. He's an MPS professor emeritus. I don't know if you still teach there, but you did at one time. I don't. And then, I get and guest talks sometimes. Just talks. He <laughs> yeah. writes for the Wall Street Journal. Look for him there. Look for his books and other things. David Henderson, everybody. And I'm Paul Wine, owner of Express Employment Professionals of Monterey County at Express. We can help your business find great people. Call us today, 831-920-1857 or look for us on the web at Express Employment Monterey. I want to thank the greatest producer in the world, Mr. Mark Carbonero and David Marzetti, the host of the Saturday morning Shagbag radio show right here on 101.1 and 1460 AM. See you next week, everybody. As it may seem, some people get their kicks stomping on a dream.